welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get the help that will transform their lives. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry. This is podcast 7B from series 3. Last podcast, 7A, we talked about safeguarding. Um, and we also snuck in an additional podcast, 6C, about working conditions in the midst of our recording schedule. Yes, yeah, so we wouldn't normally be putting out a podcast in December. Um, it's normally our month off, but we did have this extra podcast about the working conditions research that Bath University did for Social Work Union and British Association of Social Workers. And uh, it's, I just wanted to kind of update a little bit about that. And I was in... Uh, the Houses of Parliament on Tuesday, uh, just at the end of November, to meet with members of Parliament from across the UK. Actually, we had representatives from all four nations uh, to talk about the working conditions research and around 20 or so MPs signed a pledge to support social work, which was really encouraging. But the major thing that I wanted to say about that is that the members of Parliament who came along came because constituents had asked them to. So the social workers in their area had written to them and said, this is going on, can you come along? Including my MP, actually, who I wrote to. And it just really yes, struck so I me. I wrote to mine, Jerry. Sue Heyman, was she there? I actually don't know. Um, oh, but what was really up. striking was the fact that MPs do listen to their constituents. And the other thing that was really, um, really made an impression on me is that MPs had, had talked to social workers in their constituency and they talked to families in their constituency about social work issues and I think I've fallen into the trap of thinking that um, our representatives represent the people that you'd think they'd represent because of their political party but of course once they're elected they represent everyone so they are um, it's really valuable to let local politicians know about what's happening with families and adults and children and social workers concerns they do really pay attention so that that just made me quite encouraged to be honest it was good. That is a really encouraging thought. And it's part of a social work role, of course, to keep raising awareness around these issues and to keep lobbying whenever we can. Um, so are people still able to send those kind of reminder cards to their to Yes, their MPs there's a that... template letter on the mm. on basura.co.uk and you can write to your representatives and let them know about the working conditions research and there's ongoing work to work with employers and politicians around improving um, the context for doing good social work. So, yeah, absolutely do keep yeah. doing that. Um, right. There were a couple of other people that I wanted to mention who've um, heard back about the podcast. Uh, so I went to the Hertfordshire Festival of Practice and it was mentioned there, which was really great. And Andy Gill has um, highlighted the Working Conditions podcast on Twitter quite effectively. So that's really kind of him. And Alex Greenchester put out a tweet that just said, I love in capital letters, the Helpful Social Work podcast. So it's just really nice for us to hear from people. We would be happy to hear negative things as well or questioning Absolutely. things. Um, yep. But yeah, that's that's good. Oh, that sounds really good. And so, you know, do let us know what you think. And you can do this by visiting our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And as Jerry said, we, we really do want to hear from you. Now, this week, it's B Podcast. So we're looking at what we can learn from other disciplines. In these B podcasts, we aim to explore and reflect on ideas that can cast light on social work and to consider the implications um, of what we've learned. 
So we're going to talk about human rights, not as human rights lawyers or experts, but as (laughs) social workers thinking about what human rights can help us understand about social work. And it did come up in the last podcast about safeguarding. I think you said that was your um, almost benchmark or kind of uh, reference point for safeguarding. I think for, for everything, it's um, come to me more and more over the years that part of the privilege of social work is that we get to actually take individual journeys with people who may well be struggling to gain all of their human rights and to find the right place in society. And for a lot of people, human rights is this kind of abstract thing that happens out there. And they don't, they hear about it on the news, infringements of it. They don't really know anybody, but we actually get to make a difference. And I think that's, that's pretty wonderful. So we're going to talk a bit about what human rights are and where the ideas came from and what the commonly um, considered human rights are using the Mm. UN declaration and then a bit about what that might mean for practice. So um, definition, uh, I suppose the first thing to say is that the precise meaning of the term human rights is contested. Uh, But one of the ways to think about it is that they are moral principles or norms that then describe uh, a standard of human behaviour. And and that means that there are some things that should be done or shouldn't be done that are kind of accepted as, um, as, as, as rights for people. And... They are commonly, the interesting thing about them is that there's a human bit, which is any person, they should apply to any person. Um, you're entitled to these rights simply by nature of being human, um, regardless of who you are or where you come from. And they're also, the rights thing can quite often be understood as sort of inalienable, so a fundamental thing that can't be overturned in any circumstance. So that makes them generally speaking, quite universal and quite egalitarian. Um, they're the same for everybody. Now, in order for that them to actually happen, um, one of the things that kind of goes alongside the idea of human rights is the idea of the rule of law. So you actually need to have a way of upholding them. I think, Jerry, when we think about human rights and, and, and the law today, we usually think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, and that was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948. And, of course, it's just after the Second World War. The timing is not surprising. Okay, what I'm going to do here is just read out the first sentence of the preamble to the United Nations Universal De- Declaration of Human Rights. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. And that's a pretty powerful statement, really, when you think about all members of the human family. Yes. And what the the belief that human rights can lead to there, um, you know, essentially a, a better world mm. and I just wanted to touch on some the fact that this didn't come out of nowhere. There's been there've been lots of previous ideas about human rights um, through philosophical and political kind of thinking through the ages, and there had been a strong idea within philosophy of this um, these natural rights. So compared to legal rights, which are kind of decided and given to people within a society, 
the idea that people have some natural rights, which are rights that you just have by virtue of being a person. Mm. And they were usually um, negative rights. That is to say, they required um, inaction. So you didn't stop someone from doing something or you didn't um, do something to people. So the idea was that you had a right for other people not to do things or to not be stopped to do things. But there's also an idea of positive rights, which are a little bit different. So this is the right for someone to be able to do something or be able to have the opportunity to do something. And that's where it gets a bit more interesting um, because, of course, it's, it's sometimes slightly easier to say, don't do this to me than it is to say, give me the opportunity to do this. Um, and the other thing that's interesting historically is thinking about these debates about inalienable rights, um, whether there are such things, whether actually all people do have rights by virtue of being human. And I think one of the big breakthroughs in that was um, actually in the USA, where it was written into the US Constitution that um, everyone has the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and actually, that was later then used to highlight the inconsistency that there was still slavery at the time the constitution was written so this idea of everybody is quite interesting all people universality of it what this um right raises for me is um the idea of anthropocentrism which is my favorite new word at the moment which is um the belief that we have that sh humans should be treated equally based on their common humanity and then the problem that we have as individuals about what we perceive as common humanity, you know, our concern for those most immediate to us and their livelihood and dreams really does trump other people. And while we can carry out acts of altruism and um, we find them in many examples, actually donating blood, sponsoring different charities, shopping for food banks, protesting against unfair treatments, even organ donation, we're much more hard pushed to find examples where our altruism involves genuine hardship and sacrifice of either ourself or um, a, a complete, you know, complete for a complete stranger. So that idea that altruism is almost reciprocal, we get something in return. And so for me, human rights nearly always begins with our own recognition, our own ethnocentric recognition of our own rights um, and another good example of this is just the media isn't it and how the media reports things that happen in our own country if three four people uh, drown and then at the same time in Indonesia or in another country where we feel very removed there can be a tragedy where there's thousands of people and it doesn't actually get the same coverage so there's something about the hierarchy and that presents for me both difficulty and an opportunity for social work because the opportunity is that we're able to take those journeys with individuals and their families and work towards ensuring human rights. And the difficulty is that larger social infringements such as the issues of homelessness or involuntary treatment of mental health patients or um, over-representation of any one group in um, systems such as jails or CP conferences becomes harder to challenge and to grab attention. Yes, I think that's right. I think the it's really uh, valuable and rewarding to go back and read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I have to say I hadn't really read properly 
either for a long time, if at all, um, before this podcast, but I went through it and just went through it thinking, oh, do we do this then? And you're right, there's there's shades of how we do this. Um, yeah. And it does depend on how we view people. And I think the, the first challenge, actually, when you read the title, Universal Declaration, and think, universal okay what does that mean then um for me how how do i view all people and who who do i ascribe more deserving um status to than others and that's a really good exercise for a social worker actually to do that um but just reading through it i mean it starts off with all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights and i just love that um yeah and then of course we undermine (laughs) all those dignity and rights throughout people's lives so that kind of connects to me really strongly with the idea of anti-oppressive practice and trying to overcome those barriers to people having dignity and rights um yeah there's i mean people are fairly familiar i think with the protections of um you know not being um, subject to slavery or torture or um being um entitled to recognition with the law um and protection of the law and all those kind of things um, but then once you start looking into it, we do make exceptions. So, for example, uh, there, yes, there's a right to hearings. Yeah, that depends a little bit on advocacy. Um, and it, for me, that, that one about the um, right to hearings is particularly important when you consider the use of um, Section 20 of the Children Act to bring children into care, which is something that's been raised time and time again as a concern. It's where parents consent to their child being placed into care. And it's crucial that that agreement given by parents is fully informed and it doesn't infringe on theirs or their children's rights to actually an independent and impartial tribunal. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, comes to the heart of social work is Article 12, no one should be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home or correspondence. nor it's a balance on his honor or reputation sorry but yeah yeah and that's so that's a balance for us isn't it really because yeah. we do interfere um but we have to not be arbitrary and and similarly article 16 which is um men of women and women of full age that will be changed by now hopefully most places um mm. without any limitation have the right to marry and found a family and actually we have some programs where we're saying to women you probably shouldn't be having a family right now Mm. Um, so there's a lot of of questions for social work around some of those fundamental um, social things, you know, family life and privacy. Absolutely. Well, um, another one would be um, Claire's Law, which allows disclosure of um, a man's violent history to um, a new partner. And, you know, um, one of the debates or challenges around that is is the idea that that means that this person can never move anywhere, can never move on, that kind of idea. Um, but, you know, people who advocate it say that it can save people's lives. And once again, one of the interesting debates that's around at the moment is that how much evidence there is of how useful it is. Yes, I think where there is limit, where there are limitations, we have to we have to evaluate, don't we? We we must. Mm. It's it's not right. But not it's, it's about that test of fairness, isn't it, Jerry? We've got to ask why. Why are we infringing this? Is it justified? There's a couple of other articles that I wanted to mention as well. Just because I was a bit encouraged, actually. So, Article Twenty One: Everyone has the right to take part in government. So, that's essentially the right to vote, and 
one of the things that does encourage me is that I, I know in the last um, elections in this country, social workers work really hard to ensure that people who ordinarily wouldn't be able to access the polls easily got out to vote or got the postal vote or got a proxy vote. So that's people in care homes, people with mm. limited capacity. And just to remind everyone, you don't have to have capacity to vote. The other articles I think are quite encouraging are um, Article 22, the right to social security. Um, 23, the right to work. Uh, 24, the right to rest and leisure. 25, the right to a standard of living adequate for health and well-being. Um, And Article 26, the right to education. And I think that we don't come back to that often enough for people who are pushed out of those things. Mm. Um, And it's children should be in school that's one one way of thinking about it but thinking about it as children should have the right to education is different me too this these all these rights argue that we should be really um active in lobbying and challenging any cuts or any um kind of austerity packages that really impact on people in these areas you know sorry, working poverty is on the rise. You know, there are more kids growing up in families who where parents are working and they're still being impacted by poverty. And, you know, there's clear research around that says children who grow up in poor families do less well. Yeah, and that's where it becomes quite interesting in terms of the, the big challenges. So there is the challenge of competing rights that we've mentioned, but the other big challenge is the ability to exercise rights. So just giving someone a right in a document mm. isn't at all the same as saying the right to exercise them. So if you have family life, but you have no money to have you know, a meal together or a warm home or, you know, yep. um, or, pa- or parents are out all the time working, yeah. that's, it, it, it makes, yeah, it, it negates the fact that you've got that right. Mm. And that's part of what social work does, though, isn't it, is we help people access and enact their rights. I mean, I think that's one of and that, the example you gave of making sure that older people who want to vote and who are able to vote can actually vote is, is great. Yeah, we wanted to talk about the additional statements because um, the UN didn't stop with just the Universal Declaration, although... In theory, you might think that would be enough. So there are additional statements for children, older people and disabled people. Um, Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm really interested in exploring human rights from the framework of children, because although I agree with you, it's implicit in the statements. No mention is really made of age and age bias, both of the very young and the very old, is a real thing. You know, a child is perceived to have more value in some circumstances, you know, like women and babies first, but in other contexts, they have very little rights. Political, financial and legal rights are some of the areas where children and young people are marginalised, sometimes to their own detriment. And so on top of the rights that are available to everyone, there are some that apply only to children. And there's this argument that children need special rights because they need extra protection that adults don't. And so the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is an international document. It sets out all the rights that children have. A child is defined under the convention as um, any person under the age of 18. Um, And this document was agreed to in 1991 by the UK, but it hasn't been passed into law like the Human Rights Act. 
Yeah, and I think that's really interesting that children, older people would require potentially extra protection. Not for everyone um, who's older, just hasten to add, because I work with older people and it, it really, it's very personal, person dependent. Mm. Mm. Um, but it's right to think about that. It's also interesting that we have um, additional statement around disabled people. And I mm. think that shows actually that we have to have, say it more about people with a disability because actually in practice they are marginalised by um, structural issues and barriers to full citizenship. Yes. And so the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities has got this um, wonderful statement about um, Article 19 about living independently and being included in the community and that um, article recognises the equal right of all persons with disabilities to live in the community with choices equal to others um, and that we should take effective and appropriate measures to facilitate full enjoyment by persons with disabilities of this right and their full inclusion and participation. And when we were talking in um, Basra recently about what the adult social care green paper in England should look like, one of the things um, we said is we have this duty to promote well-being Actually, we should be promoting well-being to this standard, to the standard of Article 19, to the standard where people have equal right to live with choices equal to others mm. and full inclusion and participation. And I think we're just a really long way away from that. Well, we're a hugely long way away from it when we think about children, actually. Um, because one of the things that, you know, when I looked back through this, it's things like um, children... <laughs> Uh, one of the ones where you talked about um, everyone has a right to um, leave their country and come back to their country. And I was thinking about the fact that actually for children, that right is given to their parents to make a decision about where they live and don't live and where they can go and come from. Um, and this can actually be really quite difficult um, during divorces or, you know, residential disputes and things like this. So I do think that for children, um, it is it is worthwhile looking at the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child on top of um, the work that's here. Um, we were going to talk a bit about what it means in social work to be a human rights profession. And I suppose it, I just wanted to start by referring back to the, the Code of Ethics. So um, in the UK, that's held by Baswa, the Baswa Code of Ethics, which draws on the International Code of Ethics. Um, and it says that um, principles of human rights and social justice are fundamental to social work. And the ethical code comprises statements of values and principles relating to human rights, social justice and professional integrity. And the human rights section actually starts by saying social work is based on respect for the inherent worth and dignity of all peoples as expressed in the UN Universal Declaration and other related UN declarations on rights and conventions from those declarations. And the professional integrity section reinforces that and says that if we're upholding our professional integrity, that includes using our authority in accordance with human rights principles and challenging the abuse of human rights. And I think that's just, for me, using authority in accordance with human rights principles is fundamental no matter what circumstance you find yourself in as a social worker, if you can kind of anchor yourself in that idea of the inherent worth and dignity of all people and what it is 
that people are entitled to just because of their humanity, then it's very helpful in terms of using the great power that we're given um, and using our authority lightly and proportionately. Yes, and alongside that, the the challenge um, for the barriers that particular people face. Uh, so it's not enough for us to, um, according to our code of ethics, it's not enough for us to act humanely and humanly towards someone if we mm. see there are other things around, um, either people's actions or kind of structural, cultural issues, political mm. issues, economic issues, then we need to challenge those as well. And, and I think that does particularly, you know, it makes sense to start with those groups that are most marginalised or at risk. Mm. And I think that there, there are many structural barriers around at the moment um, for people and, and that, you know, it's only to be expected in times when the whole society feels uncertain about which way they're going and um, where there's economic hardship that people's idea of rights and humanity becomes narrower and narrower, doesn't it, as competition increases. The more we have to compete for resources, the narrower our definition becomes. Um, and so for social work, this is a really good time for us to be using our voices um, and advocating loudly on behalf of people who perhaps can't get that voice heard themselves. And I have an example of that actually from this week. So there was an all-party parliamentary group in um, the UK, in London, and various social workers went to talk to MPs about the Mental Capacity Act Amendment Bill, which is currently going through um, in England. Might be Wales as well. Um, and that's about um, how we effectively support people who don't have capacity to make a decision but particularly what we do about people who are um who are restricted because of the care and support that they receive and essentially their liberty is, is affected so they're deprived of liberty and social workers were arguing really strongly in that meeting for uh the protection and um uh upholding of liberty to be enshrined in the law and not in a code of practice mm. um, so they're arguing for, for for the human rights principles to be to be upheld in the law and that's a really great example of of where social workers voice can make a difference absolutely I mean activism is is uh, really important for us um, particularly in these times and some of the things that you know you can think about is action against homelessness um, against no recourse to public funds, um, against, you know, um, changes to people's benefits that really marginalise them. One of the things that I took away from the um, ADCAS conference that I was at, there was, a, there was a great talk there about poverty, and one of the actions that I took away from that to start doing is to keep talking to social workers about doing old-fashioned financial inquiries so just saying to people where are you getting your income from is it helping you meet your needs what other sources of support have you considered and making sure that I know 
all the sources of support that people can get and helping people maximise their incomes so that, um, you know, they're not missing out on things to, to, you know, their genuine detriment and hardship. Yes, and there's there's actually a lot we can do to incorporate human rights into day-to-day practice as well, isn't there? Mm. Um, so we can incorporate the um, the ideas of what a good life is held up in the de- Declaration of Human Rights um, into our assessment of situations where we're saying this person is not able to make, to to achieve this these rights. Um, into our judgments about what support um, somebody might need and our plan to achieve that. And I think being really explicit, say in an assessment of a child's um, ability to get to school or of a um, adult's ability to get employment or to have um, independent living, yeah, that, that, that this isn't just something that we think is quite nice. It's a human rights expectation. Mm would be really helpful and where there are dilemmas I think we can also be quite explicit because there are contested rights but if we're clear about what those are you know, the child has a right to this parents have a right to this there's a context mm. you know, there's a conflict there what do we think is the best way through this um, and the other thing I've I've heard social workers recently tell me that they do is that they they turn up at panels with um, with the Human Rights Act Good. And also the Equality Act, um, which we have in, mm. again, I don't know across the whole UK or in other countries, but in England, the Equality Right, uh, the Equality Act 2010, I think it is, says that we need to take account of protected characteristics, which is essentially opposing things like ageism or discrimination on any kind of grounds. So it's really good to, to refer back to that. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about this um, and and you've just touched on the conflicting interests and competing rights because, of course, one of the tensions that comes is they turn up with the Human Rights Act to panel um, to try to get resources and the pushback is we, we don't have enough resource to offer all of this human rights do you know what I mean like not, not dismissed in that way but you know we have to be pragmatic we have to think about this we've got only this to share around this is the only resource we have um, and there's something for me then about how we collect and collate the resources that we've identified that people need that we do not have the resource to offer so that we're identifying the gaps really well all the time not so that we can um look as if we're not offering a service or not kind of to to be patronising or defensive, but to actually say, you know something, there is a gap. There is a gap between what people these people need and also have a right to have and what it is that can be offered at the moment. And we need to be interested in that gap and talking much more about it, at, not only at a um, local level, but also at a national level. Yes, and one of the ways that that has an impact then is um, is when people start thinking, um, oh, if it was me, I wouldn't want that gap. So yeah. that um, recognition. And, and once again, under kind of that framework of human rights, that it's a spirit of brotherhood, isn't it? That's what the, the Universal Declaration was all about, a spirit of brotherhood. Um, And that implies, actually, that there is no shame in needing or receiving or giving help. Help shouldn't be something that the powerful give the powerless. Mm. 
That's something we how... all uphold for each other. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's And that is a human right. Yeah. I wanted to conclude with a really nice quote, which I have to say that I nicked from Lucy Series's website. She does um, has a website called The Small Places, which is about human rights. Um, and we've talked about kind of great and grand things, and rightly so. Um, but this quote is actually uh, Eleanor Roosevelt from 1958, who said, Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home. So close and so small that they cannot be seen on any map of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person. Unless the rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. And without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world.